So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, man fans. I'm Ollie Mann, and here's what's coming up on the show. What do you mean, yes? What is that? How do you know something? What are you talking about? And then she's like, we should wait for your dad to get home from work. And I was like, do you know who your daughter is? You're not, I'm not waiting. Like, what? Tell me now. Family secrets, life or death decisions, and performing with a disability. Jen Bricker's incredible story. Plus. Sometimes it's just the thrill of watching that sex act take place in front of you. Alex Fox gets kinky in small communities, whilst Ollie Pitt heads to the USA's biggest city in pursuit of the crims. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello to Steve, our ambassador in Meath. Uh, that's in Ireland. He says, Ollie, thank you for coming back on air. There was a big gap in my auditory life while you guys were away. Uh, seriously, if, if only everyone I knew was so happy when I deigned to open my mouth. Uh, your content, Steve says, is the best the podiverse has to offer. Podiverse, eh? I, I'm all for portmanteaus, um, but perhaps let's save some of the pod ones for the podiatrists. You know, I just feel like the rise in podcasting must be very frustrating if you're a foot specialist. All the web domains are gone. Should have been a chiropodist. Anyway, uh, lots of you have been in touch as well about last month's episode, Pupil A. Look, we knew this was going to be a story that would provoke a response, and it has. Uh, Malcolm wrote in to say, Ollie, this is the first time I've ever been moved to write into a show. It was such a moving story. I've been telling everyone to listen to it. It was so brave of the participants, and you deserve credit for creating a safe space to talk. Uh, Harris tweeted us, at the modern man. He says, I've got some very strange looks on the bus as I audibly gasped at that reveal. Um, Whereas John uh, tweeted to say, I felt deeply concerned, both about the subject and how it was handled, and Lindsay from Philadelphia, regarding the story itself, uh, emailed to say, I think Ben's actions were inherently coercive. Maybe it wasn't right that he was shoved into a therapist's position, but intimate emails, when he was in a position of authority, tips the power scales way in his favour. Even if he didn't initiate, it was on him to draw the line. Things that seem like part of the new fun world of dating to a teen look deeply fucked up to an adult outsider. Um, Well, that is just a taste of some of the responses that came in. And what I love about doing the interviews in this show is sometimes we are talking about things that are deeply fucked up, as Lindsay puts it. And frankly, I often don't know what to think, because that's life, isn't it? 
some things are ambiguous, even if you think you know what you think, if you know what I mean. So I'm just pleased that our stories are making you think and that everyone got something out of that episode. Uh, Thank you, everybody, as well, who's got in touch to congratulate us on winning Best Interview at the British Podcast Awards. Hoo yeah! Um, (laughs) um, Some people have been asking whether that was a general award or was it for a specific interview. It was for a specific interview. It was for our episode, What Nobody Tells You About Rape. The judges said some lovely things about my interview style, and that was great. But honestly, really, this was Martha's story. And it was brilliant because she came on stage with me. She accepted the award. Uh, Martha, you might recall, is a a long-term listener of the show um, who wrote in to ask if she could tell us about bringing her rapist to justice. And in collaboration with her making that episode, producer Matt and I decided not to ask the usual questions that you might hear in a mainstream interview. We focused the conversation on what happened next and it's so satisfying six months later to see that that interview is still resonating with people. So Martha, thank you and thank you everybody who shares their story with us on this show. Uh, This episode today is another memorable example by the way, uh, suggested by one of our listeners actually. You're going to love Jen Bricker. She is inspirational. Uh, But before we get going, a quick thank you to Thriver for sponsoring this episode. Uh, Thriver, if you haven't heard of them, is a fingerprint blood test you can do at home. They've just sent me one in the post. It's um, all white and cool. It looks like a new pair of earphones or something. And then you open up the packaging and inside is basically a test tube and some alcohol swabs and things to prick your finger with. Now, I haven't done it yet because they say apparently it's best to do it in the morning on an empty stomach. But essentially, you post off your home test, which takes about five minutes. Their labs analyse it. A freelance GP looks at your results and interprets the data that your blood contains. So your cholesterol, liver function, vitamin D, blood count. And then they give you advice to get healthier. So this could be a great test to do if you have a low-level health concern affecting your life at the moment. If you are lethargic all the time, if you've just changed your diet, or actually, frankly, if like me, you just fancy doing a bit of body hacking just curious what's going to happen um (laughs) why not test it i'm going to report back in the next episode about what my thriver test says Uh, and in the meantime if you want to try it out you can get 25 pounds off your first test at thriver.co by using our code man Uh, if you're worried about data security by the way i asked them about that All their privacy policies are on their website, but essentially they say only their labs and their GPs ever see your results. Um, So once again, for £25 off your first test, head to Thriver.co. That's T-H-R-I-V-A.co and use our code MAN, M-A-N-N. Right, on today's show, you will learn why you might need to take two morning after pills. You'll learn exactly what you should be buying on the corner of Broom Street and Allen Street. And you'll learn what power tumbling is. Let's go. Okay, time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested with some kind of wise guy we got here. It's Ollie Beard. We're in the middle of we're in the middle of a street in New York. I'm not afraid with to do that voice. Lots of local New Yorkers around. People just, just assume a... I'm a local. Are you enjoying New York City so far? Everywhere you look, because you, because you, you watch it on TV and the movies, and everywhere you look, it's like a film set. It's amazing. How many times have we done we've done the Friends noise? Because we've looked at the buildings and gone down, downtown. Every time you see a fire escape. My favourite thing about travelling with you so far was mm. when we got on the subway and you said, "Well, this hasn't changed since Ghostbusters." And it hasn't. So we're here in New York City to test out the crime monitoring app Citizen. Uh, but before we do, Ollie, listeners will recall that I've also tasked you to bring me a food trend we don't yet have in the UK. What have you dug up? 
So I wanted to get some advice from our listeners, so I just put it out there on Twitter, and I got some I got some pretty decent suggestions. So Arian, he tweeted me and he said, you should try 24-carat gold chicken wings. I mean, that's grotesque. And, and actually, you're a vegetarian. Uh, yeah, and golden food is a the thing. There's like $1,000 bagels and stuff like that, but they've kind of been done on YouTube. So and wrong, isn't it? It's just wrong on so many levels. But appreciate the suggestion. Mm-hmm. Cornish Skeptic suggested the Impossible Burger, but of course... Done it. We've done it. Yeah. So I was like, We can get that at home now. Yeah. Great suggestion. Get it in Tesco. Yeah, was that? I thought, well, I'll do, I'll do some digging around in my usual way because I wasn't just going to let people on Twitter do it. And I found the next big trend in 2019 in New York, and actually the States, but New York more so, uh-huh. and it was CBD-infused food and drink, right? So this is... That's cannabis. It's cannabis, yeah. It's uh, cannabid oil. So cannabid oil. So I, I always thought cannabis oil, but it's not. It's cannabid oil. Uh-huh. That's how you pronounce it. And it's an extract from the cannabis plant. So does it get you high? No. Okay. It's, it's just touted to help things like chronic pain and anxiety. Chefs are getting really excited about it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted us to come here and try some of that stuff. But despite it being set to be this big 2019 trend, the Department of Health, uh, oh, you, can't, you cannot sell it infused in food and drink. So although you can buy the oil, you can go into like, I don't know, some health shop and they're cracking down on businesses that are selling it and saying, you can't sell that anymore. Okay, so we're not doing that. No. So you've brought me to, um, and New Yorkers will know, we're on the corner of Broom Street and Allen Street, kind of near the Williamsburg Bridge. Corner of, that's so American. That's American, isn't it? Very. Just a few blocks up. Oh yes, and the corner (laughs) of. There's a lot of shops with Asian signs. Are we in Chinatown? We are, but we're not here for Chinese stuff. We're here for Filipino stuff. Okay. So I got another suggestion on Twitter from Paul Smith, and he's like, look, New York City, ice cream. But there's one in particular that is taking New York by storm, and that is Ube ice cream, or Ube. Like the last part of Lube. Or the first part of Uber, if you're prudish. So Ube is a root vegetable. It's basically a sweet potato. Sweet um, potato ice cream. Basically, that yeah. That does sound revolting. I mean, I have, I'm open-minded, but... It's a staple in the Philippines. Like, it's a staple food. It's nothing unusual. And it's a bright, rich purple colour. And they use it in one of their most famous desserts, which is called Halo Halo. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's like a, a mixture of cream and condensed milk. And it's got this purple ube ice cream on the top. And it's actually been sold for quite a long time. It's been around for a while. So there's a couple of Filipino restaurants in New York. What's happened recently is that second-generation Filipino chefs have uh, started experimenting with ube in like more adventurous ways. So putting it in like different foods like pancakes and cheesecakes and waffles and that kind of thing. I but see. So it's kind of like a cultural mashup. Yeah, like exactly. If you're an American Filipino, it's a natural thing to take a Filipino food product and put it in American ice cream. Yeah, and actually, it's sort of it's a sweet and savoury flavour, and they like that because they can put it with pretty much anything. But one that's really kicking off is in ice cream. People love it because of its colour, so it's great for Instagram. It looks brilliant. It's supposed health benefits, even though it's got a load of sugar in it. And but also because of its taste, because it's like a mix of sweet and savoury, people are like you don't get tired of it. You can just keep eating it. It's like really, really Moorish. Okay, well we're going to put that to the test. We are, and. Here they are. Wow, those are purple as fuck. <laughs> yeah, these are from Softsworth, which is just there. And I've got two different toppings. I've got toasted coconut mm-hmm. and crushed Oreo, which are their two most popular toppings. Can I have, have the Oreo one, please? You can have the Oreo Thank one, you. yeah, it's fine. So should we, they're melting quite quickly. Yes, they so are. Let's, uh, but it's quite a stodgy consistency, though. Oh, you know what that tastes like? Oh. What that tastes exactly like is when you get those gummy round sweets from Chinatown. You know the ones that like almost like a Chinese version of Turkish Delight? Yeah. That's what they taste like? That must be like a sweet potato flavouring 
in Chinese food that I've had before, but I've never had it in Filipino dessert. That thing about it being not too sweet and not too savoury, that is bang on. I could eat a ton of this. Okay, well done. I have genuinely put a thing in my mouth I never have before. Nom, nom, Um, nom. Now, uh, listeners will be keen to know how you've got on with testing out Citizen, uh, which was the trend suggestion of Gavin from Market Harborough. Uh, Remind us what Citizen is. Citizen is an app that basically shows you crimes that are happening around you in real time. Yes, and you can only get it in a few US cities, right? Yeah. It's designed... Sorry. (laughs) A mouthful of ice cream. Such an inappropriate look to be discussing crime <laughs> does that happen on crime watch <laughs> well, no. it, is. it would make it so much better There's look after each other and yourself <laughs> just ice cream. by the way make sure lock your windows and doors yes it's only available in a few US cities Los Angeles Baltimore Washington and New York I think and that's why we've come to New York because you tried with a VPN at home and you couldn't use it at home no so it, it, it detects your location so even though I was using the VPN and I had an IP for the US, blah, 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 boring, 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 it basically read that my GPS was in Dorchester. It was like, no, it's no crime in Dorchester. Just, <laughs> just people mowing lawns. Nothing so, uh, of note happens in Dorchester. It wouldn't let me do it. I don't think that's the case. I've seen Midsummer Murders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are you feeling about using the app? I'm anxious about it, if I'm honest. Like, I think because one of the first things that comes up when you launch the app is a warning saying, do not go to any of the crimes. And what you're asking me to do is go to the crime. No, not really. What Gavin's asking you to do is be in New York and experiencing it and seeing what it's like walking around this world-famous city for a day and being aware of all the crime that's happening around you. He just wants to send me to one of the most wonderful cities in the world and just be paranoid all the time. That's it. So, uh, it's now 6pm New York time, and Ollie, we are going to send you off deep into the night. You're going to report back tomorrow, which, uh, through the magic of podcasting, is going to be in about one minute's time. After our record of the month, this is the latest track by Another Sky. It's called The Cracks, and it's from their forthcoming EP, Life Was Coming In Through the Blinds. It's available from the 14th of June via Fiction Records. Bits of spring are in the I feel them still. I feel them still. Right, well, it's the morning after the night before. Ollie, how has it been? Um, in a word, odd. After we spoke, I straight away whip, whip the app out, and then it basically pops up with loads of little red splodges on your on the on a map of, of New York, mm-hmm. Manhattan. And those red splodges are crimes that have happened. Well, I thought they were crimes, but you start tapping through and you realise they're not just crimes, but they're things that have kind of happened that might be a bit annoying like a water leak or a gas leak in the past few days. And I was like, well, this is weird. I don't care what happened three days ago. I want to know what's happening now. Yeah, it's all supposed to be about real-time crime monitoring. As I walked around, those red splodges, a few of them, got bigger. And the big ones are real-time things that are happening. Uh And nine times out of ten, it will be reported thing, police in attendance. 
And that's because it's scanning police radio. And emergency services radios. The app itself uses voice recognition technology to determine what's going on. And that's how it's able to respond so quickly. And yeah. then that is... Cross- well, are you saying quickly, but you're looking at stuff that's days old. Well, no, they just stay on the map. So some of them were appearing as they were happening. Yes. But it is geotagged, so it is stuff, even if it happened a few days ago, it's stuff that's happening around where you are. Yeah. So I suppose the advantage is, like, you know, if you're choosing, for example, where you might want to live, it's like, okay, this is, these are the crimes that have happened around this house for the last seven days. You say that. This is the surprising thing that I have found about it, is I would imagine that for an app like this to exist, there'd have to be a real need for it. Like, oh, you know, I'm genuinely scared in this city. I mm. want to know like, what's happening at any given moment so I can avoid it, like if there's like gun crime. What I found more than anything, overwhelmingly so, is how safe I felt in this city. You felt safer having the app? Not necessarily safer having the app, but safe in the knowledge that actually the worst things that were happening were the smell of gas or a water leak, <laughs> a man slipped and fell on the subway tracks. Like there is, there's obviously violent crime, but actually some of the stuff that's reported, so it'll be like brandished knife. That's one that I've seen about 10 times that come up. And then it will say, police confirm, no knife brandished. So that means, presumably, it's ended up on the app because someone, probably a computer, mm. has overheard someone on a police radio suspect yeah. that a knife has been brandished, mm-hmm. and then later it's followed up and indeed it wasn't. Yeah, that's right. You don't need that information in your life. Last night, there were a few reports of gunshots reported, and you'd think, OK, well, that's, that's quite important. And they're detected with a police... There's like a police system, gunshot detection system... And there was one in a neighbourhood just not, not too far from here, and it had over 100 comments, and people were like, you idiots, it's not a gun, it's the thunder from last night, because we have mad thunderstorms and stuff. So it has its problems. So actually, just before we met a guy in a subway station, First Avenue subway station, got slashed in the face with a knife. Whoa, that's yeah. not a gas leak. Yeah, OK, that's not a gas leak, it's pretty bad. But that, the way that it started was reports of knife, and then it was police on scene, then it was... A bloke's been uh, slashed in the face, and then it came up as verified with a green tick, which meant that that crime had been verified, had happened. And there were four live videos from people that were there on the scene. Of what? Just the police there, because it's happened, you know, those people are there after it's happened. It's not like people are walking around with a camera just waiting for stuff to happen. It's always afterwards. So, But why are they filming the police there? One of the reasons, and we'll know this from, like, back in the UK, you hear reports about racial tensions between police and the community and I think people just want to have a record of it a public record you know almost checking the police policing the police I kind of see that but there's a grisly part of you isn't there that when you hear that an event has happened and you click on the video you're not really expecting to see a video of the police doing the cleanup operation you're sort of secretly hoping you will see the moment that someone got punched in the face and that's voyeurism isn't it there's definitely a group of people that will download the app specifically with the thought that they might see something gruesome on there because we all know that people like that exist in the world. But for other people, I don't think they do. I think it's genuine intrigue, just interest in, oh, what is happening? How dangerous is New York? But the point about the app isn't just about looking at what is going on around you that other people have posted up. It's about contributing to it too. Yeah. Did you post a video? I did. What was it of? (laughs) Well, there was a report of some gas odour that had been smelt. Right. Yeah. That's so, like some really important... And, and it was only half a mile away. I thought, work. I can get to this while it's happening. And it was, it was like, just now, gas odour mm-hmm. reported. Firefighters on scene. I was like, yes! So I went along, and uh, sure enough, there wasn't one fire engine. There were three fire engines mm-hmm. 
they were just standing outside. A bunch of firefighters just standing out there. Uh, and so you I, took a video of them? Yeah, whipped it out. So what yeah. did you put? I'm at the scene, I can't no, smell no, gas. You, you don't write anything, so you don't write a comment. What, what it does is it, if, if it knows that you're in that location, it gives you the option to record live. So you, can, you can't just record live anywhere. You have to be at a place where something's kicking off. So you just record live. And you just stand there. You couldn't obviously talk because it's recording audio, so you could narrate it if you really wanted to. I just stood there and filmed some firefighters standing outside a Chinese shop. And did you feel like you were being a good citizen? Well, one person was watching. Uh, overall, I think like 90 or 100 people saw it, and the traffic was pretty bad. So, you know, if somebody was trying to get through... What do you think the final goal is for citizen, though? Do you think they're going to try and sell to Google and be incorporated into Google Maps or something? Because that's where I could see this working is... Yeah, it'll be every man for himself. <laughs> that's what it'll be. <laughs> It'd be Hunger Games. That's that's what's going to happen. No. What I'm saying is I wouldn't download this app, right? Because I'm not interested in monitoring real-time crime. But if an app that I was using anyway told me, don't go to this area right now because there's reports of an armed robbery, that might be useful. And I wonder if that's really their exit strategy. I I don't think we're far away from that anyway. I mean, already on Google Maps in the UK, you can report when there's a police car or, you know, mobile speed camera or whatever. That facility already exists and people use it all the time. Like, all the time. Um, Right, well, time for your challenge for next month's show. It is from David from East Anglia, who says, I have been a professional magician for over 10 years now, working at events ranging from kids' birthday parties to corporate functions. My job is constantly changing because of the way social media and Netflix have impacted magic. A new wave of young magicians have taken it up as a hobby. (laughs) Ollie's face is priceless right now. So, (laughs) this does not involve a trip to New York. So, I would like to challenge Ollie to step into my magic shoes. (laughs) I could even help him learn a trick that he could perform to you for next month's episode. Magicians have been around for ages. So, this is not a, this is nothing new. No, well, this is no, but he's saying it is a trend because magic has had a renaissance on social media. So it's about how magic has changed, Ollie. Come on, magic. I've never, I've never done magic before. I'd just be worried about fucking it up the whole time. Like I've tried, like asking about with uh, cards, like doing all the like the card, tr- you know, where they spread it really far apart and then catch it and do it. Yeah, all. it takes a lot of work. Uh, just fuck it up. Yeah, but that's fine. I just do it to you, and it doesn't matter if I fuck it up. Well. That's what you think, Ollie. You will be performing this magic trick that uh, David will be teaching you at the Underbelly on London's glittering South Bank as part of the Best of the British Podcast Awards on the 16th of June in front of a paying audience of podcast fans. Paying? Yep. They're going to pay to watch me not do magic properly. I mean, the good news is they're paying to see a selection of podcasts that have won awards and so our bit the bit that's representing our award-winning interview show will be you doing a shit magic trick yes i mean i've actually heard of the underbelly so it's a proper venue yeah yeah Yeah. a bit frightened now uh yeah look we raise the stakes oh god i'm gonna fuck this right up so if you want to see ollie make a total ass of himself as well as performances from other award-winning podcasts like imaginary advice the tip-off and project pleasure get your tickets now we put a link on our website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk what kind of trick would you like it to be ollie uh disappearing (laughs) this episode of the modern man is brought to you by beer 52 the uk's number one craft beer club they deliver exclusive small batch beers selected by experts to your door so when you fancy a great beer you don't need to go and chat to a man with a beard about hops you'll get to sample some amazing flavors as well my latest box came with a jam donut flavored beer amazing and international beers from places like portland oregon as well as great british brewers like gypsy hill want to try it out you can get a free case that's right 
a free case just for being a man fan. All you need to pay is the £2.95 postage to try out the service, and then you can cancel if you want at any time. Head to beer52.com slash man. That's the word beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash M-A-N-N. Cheers. Now, as you know, we are always looking for your suggestions as to who we should interview on the show. And this email came in a couple of months ago from Manfan Mikey in Dubai, who says, Ollie, I would like to suggest a lady named Jen Bricker for an interview on your show. She is honestly one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. Her story is unbelievable. I met her while she was learning to indoor skydive in Dubai, which is in itself astonishing once you learn a bit more about her. Well, Jen's here. Hi, Jen. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. That's a pretty cool story. <laughs> uh, tell me why you were learning to indoor skydive in Dubai. Well, it was because I was scuba diving. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course, naturally. And the dive guys are friends with the skydivers. And they have the largest wind tunnel in the world in Dubai. Good fact. Yes. And uh, the, the guys that were teaching me were like, I can't believe how good you are on your first try. And I had nothing to judge it on of what was good and what was bad. And I don't, I don't know. I just was just in there trying it. And there's a couple of reasons why they may and may not be surprised by your proficiency at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the reason they shouldn't be surprised is you are a professional acrobat, aerialist, mm-hmm. etc. And that's why you were in Dubai. I, that is why I was in Dubai. I was performing, uh, doing aerial performing specifically at the, uh, it's called The Act. It was in the Shangri-La Hotel. And you're one of those people that dangles from, um, forgive me, I don't know the technical no, term. Oh yeah, yeah, the silks. Unwind, spin, fly, wrap, all the crazy fun stuff, yes. And then the reason they might be surprised that you're good at indoor skydiving is because you have no legs. How, yeah. How did I mean, you become an aerialist? So I guess you have to go back to answer that question because when I was a kid, I competed in power tumbling for four years. You know, in gymnastics, you have four events, floor, bars, beam, vault. Well, the floor, which is in gymnastics, a big square, and that's where the actual tumbling, the flipping, the back flipping, the twisting. Power tumbling specifically is where, instead of a a square, it's a long strip of a floor, right, with the springs underneath. And this is a long kind of a runway looking one rather than a square. And you you literally tumble. So you do back flips, back handsprings, twists, this and that. And so that's what I competed in specifically for four years as a kid. I was the first person like myself with no legs to ever compete in power tumbling. Ever in the world? Ever, yeah, ever. Uh, It's not like there was some special division for that, you know? So uh, first person like myself doing that and actually winning. From Illinois, Jennifer Bricker. So when you were learning power tumbling, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that you actually had a better idea of how you might do it than the gymnastic teachers in a way. Well, you know, and it's a big credit to the gymnastic teachers, first of all. My, My coach was amazing. She obviously had never coached someone without legs, right? And and you have a choice at that moment. She had a choice to either say, no, I don't know how to do this. I'm not going to try to coach some girl with no legs. I don't know what you're talking about. Or, which is what she said was, you know, I can't guarantee you anything. I can't promise you. I've, I've never done this, but we'll try. I remember the first time I was going to do a back handspring and they were kind of like, well, so how are, how are you really going to do it? And I said, just like this. And I ran, did a round off, back handspring. 
And when you say run, you mean running on your hands. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. With my, yeah, with my hands. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what started the beginning of me being on TV and newspapers and magazines. And, and I didn't get it. You know, I didn't get why people were saying I was such an inspiration and why they were saying I was so amazing. And I was like, I was really actually very irritated by it. <laughs> I didn't get it. So much didn't get it because I was treated just so normal at home and at school. Mm. So I was like, well, why am I being on TV and my friend who's doing exactly what I'm doing, why are you not interested in her? I don't get it. To me, it was so normal. That's the environment I grew up in. You know, it was like, my parents are like, well, if you want to do something, then I just do it. I don't know. Don't make excuses. <laughs> you know, it's either you want it bad enough and you put your mind to it and you figure out a way to do it. Yeah, or you must, obviously, you don't want it that bad. So when you were eight, nine years old and you were watching the Olympic team on TV, mm-hmm. there was an athlete who you particularly bonded with. Yes. Yeah, I, I saw Dominic Mochianu. The United States of America, Dominic Mochianu. Both former protégés of Bella Caroli. This is Dominic Mochianu. Such strength in yes. all her moves. No way, Tim. She is taking charge of this routine. So she was competing for Team USA, and she was small, and I was small. So there was, as a kid, that's why I bonded to her. 9.85 on the balance beam. How much did your <laughs> fandom go? Yeah, I had a book. I had a poster of her in my room and in, in uh, my where I competed and practiced in tumbling. You know, we had a picture, a poster of the whole team and also a poster of her because that was the year that the Olympics were in Atlanta. So they were on home turf in the U.S. The women's team won gold. So it was just this, it became an iconic team. Oh, this was um, really fun. I had so much fun. It was great. The audience was great. And I enjoyed myself competing. And I haven't competed in, like, not too long, but, you know, since my injury. I had already this innate desire to tumble and to love gymnastics. Then I see her, and it was like it just kind of amplified it, you know? And it was like, oh, my gosh. And I saw myself in her. And I was like, yeah, of course I can do that. Like, I I remember as a kid, probably (laughs) eight years old, watching them on the balance beam. And I thought, you know, if I want to go to the Olympics, I mean, of course I could do it. But maybe not on the balance beam. Maybe I just do the other three. Like, I remember thinking that so (laughs) exactly like that. Just, yeah, of course I can do it if I want to go to the Olympics. But do I really want to give my whole life to go to the Olympics? Do I really want to sacrifice my whole life? Yeah, but the balance beam, I mean, hmm. It's kind of important to have legs for that, so maybe I just do the other three. <laughs> that was such a normal thought as a kid watching TV, and I really thought about it. I was like, really putting in, like, what would it actually take to get, you know, what would it, what would it practically look like? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that even extended to you having some roller skates made so that you could use them with your hands. Oh, not made, just standard roller skates, because, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't much to do. Everybody was going to the roller rink, you know, skating and doing the limbo, and I wanted to win the limbo. I wanted to, like, you know, beat everybody in the limbo. I was always competitive. <laughs> and so I, yeah, didn't even cross my mind that I couldn't do it or that it was it's something impressive to do. I was just like, I want to go roller skating. And, you know, my parents, again, at all of these stops would have had so many reasons to 
discourage me. Mm. Maybe it's too dangerous for you or how are you going to do that? Or any of those things, you know, would have been totally discouraging to, to a child. And also in the kind of health and safety culture that we have now, um, <laughs> yeah. there's obviously a lot of impetus for organizations to ensure that, you know, their doors are open to people of different abilities. So probably there'd now be, you know, a disabled roller skating session. And yet yeah. it seems to me that what would appeal to you would be to roller skate with everybody else. Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, there was a wheelchair basketball team in St. Louis, about three hours from where I grew up, and they asked me to join the competitive basketball team, the wheelchair basketball team. I, I looked at my parents and I said, "So, how do you play with kids like that? <laughs> Meaning disabled people? Mm. Because I had never, I didn't know any, mm. and I didn't realize I was." sort of one of them, you know, to other people. The, you know, they were laughing. They're like, well, maybe you should ask your friends, you know? They play with you. And it didn't even dawn on me mm. to be a part of, like, a Paralympic sport. Long into my mid-20s, I was still uncomfortable around people who were disabled. And then that they would come up to me like we had some common bond. And I was like, what are you... I'm not like, what are you talking about? Why do you act like we're the same person? You know, and it was super irritating to me. And, um, it, but it was just, that was just kind of the way it was in my family. But when you were born, you were abandoned by your birth parents. Yes. I wish there was a nicer word for that. I, uh, yeah, I know. It's okay. There isn't, <laughs> is there? Yeah, I mean, left in the hospital, put up for adoption. Yeah, that's that would be the word. And it's it sounds heavy, it sounds dark, it sounds sad, you know. But really, I, I really truly believe that that's how it was supposed to be. All the other 299 different alternatives, they most likely wouldn't have been what, how my family was. And I say 299 because there were 299 couples on a waiting list to adopt me as a kid. That's 299 different ways I could have came out differently as a person. Did your parents know, your biological parents know, that they were going to give you up for adoption? I don't think they did until I was born because I, there was only one ultrasound during the whole pregnancy. And my biological mom still didn't speak English at the time. And she knew something wasn't right when she saw the doctor's face. She just could tell something maybe wasn't right in the ultrasound. But... No one really said anything to her. I think maybe her husband, my biological father, was doing all the talking. And, you know, that was it. And then she didn't even get to hold me when I was born. Why didn't she get to hold you? Because he made the choice to put me up for adoption. Your father? Yes, my biological father. And I was born through a C-section. And so I don't know if she was passed out. I don't know. There's still a lot of details I don't know (laughs) about certain things. I don't know if he thought it would be easier for her, if she never got to see me, never got to be attached. I don't know. So your mother woke up having given birth Mm -hmm. and then being told, firstly, your daughter is disabled. Secondly, you're not going to ever see her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Imagine living with that. I mean, what that would do to you. Yeah, that's, that's heavy. What did it do to you growing up? From as young as I can remember, I always knew I was adopted. I knew my biological family was from Romania, and I knew... Uh, My parents said, you know, they probably gave you up for adoption. One of the reasons, if not the biggest reason, is probably because you didn't have legs. You know, they're from a different country. They grew up under communism. There was a totally different mentality. People who were born like you were just thrown into an orphanage. You know, they just didn't really have 
much respect for that. People think you're cursed or all these things, you know, in that mentality. And they explained that to me from very, very beginning, like as early as I can remember. And I, I think, think... Can you accept that as a child? Yes, you can. And that's that's why I think I didn't have a huge issue about it because they were honest from the beginning. Because you say that and you're just like, okay, yeah, that, all right, that makes sense. And they're like, we prayed for you. We wanted you. You were our answered prayer. This is the way it was supposed to be. And so it, it doesn't matter why they gave you up, why they left you. You don't know what was going on in their life. You didn't walk in their shoes. You know, but bottom line is that we, you were with us, and that's where you're supposed to be. And I was just like, okay. So as a kid, you, you listen to your, your parents, and you're like, okay, that's what they say. And they also, in addition to that, said, don't, don't hate them. Like, don't hold any hate towards them, again, because you don't know why. You don't know what their why was. You didn't walk in their shoes, you know? And so don't judge them, don't hate them, and all that. That gave me freedom to not carry a chip on my shoulder my whole life. That's huge. When you were 16 your friend, who was also adopted, Mm -hmm. started investigating into her biological surname. Yeah, I was never interested in my biological family. And then, boom, all of a sudden, she mentions what her biological last name would have been. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what mine would have been, huh? And then I go home and I ask my mom, kind of nonchalant, like a pretty, it was like a rhetorical question. Eh, I didn't expect an answer. Is there anything you know about my biological family that I don't know about? And then she answers back and she says, yes. And I was like, what do you mean, yes? What is that? How do you know something? What are you talking about? And then she's like, yeah, you know, we should wait for your dad to get home from work. And I was like, do you know me? Have you met me? Do you know who your daughter is? You're not, I'm not waiting. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> tell me now. Like, you, you drop a bomb like that and then tell me to wait? I, no. So, um... So she goes and gets this huge envelope with all these papers stuffed in it. And, you know, the ends turned all yellow because they were old and they had been in there for a while. And she puts it on the table and she's like, you're never going to believe this, but your last name would have been Mochianu. And I was like, direct line from A to B. I knew what that meant. You knew you were Dominique Mochianu's biological sister. Yep. Yep. 100% because... It's not like it's a common last name. (laughs) And then it was, I want to meet her. So it was supposed to be a closed adoption, meaning all the documents, the legal documents from the adoption were supposed to be blacked out. So you'd never know. Exactly. Okay, so that's miracle number 500 million one, whatever. You want to chalk that up on the board. So the social worker hands my parents the adoption papers literally goes holding the papers in her hands oh these are supposed to be all blacked out Hmm. oh well here you go wow that doesn't ever happen that's like illegal not in the usa yeah no that's just what you know and without those documents my mom wouldn't have put two and two together to figure out that Dominique was my biological sister. And they put it together my years mom before. Put, yes. Watching TV, watching the Olympics, they pan to the audience, they show Dimitri and Camilla Mochianu, light bulb goes off my mom's head, you know, eight years later now, after the adoption, man, those names sound familiar. Goes and gets the adoption papers, starts doing the math, hmm, Camilla Mochianu, Dimitri Mochianu, sibling six years older, hmm, 
Dominique, six years older, from Romania. She's like, holy crap. How did you think you might best get in touch? It needed to be done with finesse. So I wanted legal documents. I wanted proof. I wanted it like every T crossed and I dotted. I was like, and my uncle was a private investigator. (laughs) Like, just throw that into the story of of, of a movie. And uh, (laughs) so I was like, okay, I want this done professionally. So he was the first person I contacted to contact my biological parents. And... We were like, all of us thought, yeah, right. They're going to deny the fact that they had a daughter. They're going to say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. We never put up a child for adoption. Goodbye. But I think they were so shocked when he called them that they we found them because it was supposed to be a closed adoption that they they admitted to it. But after that initial phone conversation with my uncle, uh, there was no more phone conversations. They didn't answer anymore. They didn't, you know radio silence we went to them first you know but I was more so like I want to meet my sister and then when I was looking on her website I saw I had another sister and she looked like my twin like straight up same face same everything that was like so that's what I would look like with legs like that was like you know it was really it was so interesting and I always look so different from people where I grew up and then to have someone that looks exactly like me was for me really really cool because I didn't have that How did they react when you did finally make contact? Well, it was, I mean, I sent this totally organized package, you know, now, now I'm 20 at this time when it was successful, uh, copies of all the legal documents from the adoption. So their signatures, Camelia and Dimitri's signatures, copied all of that so that she could see a legal document. Then, uh, pictures from the time I was a baby to that age 20 because of the resemblance was undeniable. Mm. And then... I remember and I sat and I carefully thought when I was writing the letter, I don't want it too long. I don't want it too short. Do I tell her I don't have legs or do I wait? I mean, she's already getting a sister she didn't know about. Maybe I should wait for the legs till later. Like, and that's what I ended up doing. So I didn't tell her in, in the initial letter that I didn't have legs. And I like actively sat and pondered on that for a long time. Was there an element of fear of rejection there because of that? Because her biological parents and yours have rejected um, you for that reason? Not so much rejection, fear of rejection, just like, how is she, what are they going to think? Or how are they going to handle it? Or, you know, Mm. I just didn't know what they would think. And it wasn't until our first phone conversation, which was uh, January 2008 with Dominique. And we had been on the phone for like an hour. And I had this like, you have to tell her now. Now's the time to tell her that you don't have legs. And I was like, fine. So... I had already told her all the sports that I did, all the things I competed in as a kid. And then it was like, I said, oh, you know, by the way, I'm sure you already know this, but I was born without legs, but it's no big deal. It's all fine. Like, I <laughs> and she was like, there was just silence for a minute. And you could tell she was trying to be like, not cool about it. You know, oh, wow. Okay. So I didn't know that. That was her. <laughs> and I was like, I had to hold back my laughter, you know, because I knew she didn't know, but I just, I, I just wanted to say it. And she was like, well, and her first question was, so, but did you have a good childhood? Because that was her first concern was like, but so were you okay? Like, were you taken care of? You know, it was really sweet that she asked that. Do you think she was angry about the fact that your parents had given you up for adoption? Of course she was. I mean, she was more angry that they didn't tell her, you know, for a while. She was like, well, how did you keep this from me? Why didn't you say anything? And, you know, the normal reactions. And then she, of course, she forgave them later on. But initially, yeah, of course, she was frustrated it was just an immediate she calls them and they answer the phone and she doesn't even 
say anything. She just says, did you give up a child in 1987? Like, boom, just right to it. And they were like, <laughs> they just, they were still in bed. And, and yeah, they started crying. And of course the truth came out just to confirm when she got the package, you know. I met Dominique first at the airport. Christina flew in a little bit later. Her flight was delayed. And so it was like surreal, but natural. Hmm. Doesn't make any sense, but that's what I was feeling at the time. So when I met her, she was immediately my sister. It was, there was no like, oh, you're the gymnast. It was, that was gone, 100% gone. And, but it was like, we just kept, all three of us were like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't, we would just look around at each other like, what? And, and then all the similarities started coming out. Like it was, you know, we, we all three had butterfly tattoos on our backs. No. Yes. Yep. And my younger sister and I had it in the exact same place. That's just. Exact same place. Really bizarre. Yeah. So that was same food interests, same likes. And do you I do mean, a little tick list? You say, oh, what's your favorite chocolate bar? Do you go through them all? Well, in the beginning with texting with my younger sister, yeah, it was like, what's your favorite? We would like quiz each other. <laughs> so if you were here in this scenario, what would you do? And it was like nine times out of 10, it was the same answer. But, but then it would just naturally come out in when we were together. Like, oh, you do this too? Oh, you like that too? What? Like, you know? And, and then uh, my sister's boyfriend at the time, which is now her husband, was like identical to my ex, like when I was younger, years ago. Like it's the same everything. Looks, interest, all that. And we're just like, what? I mean, just the weirdest. We like the same foods. We would, our voices, exactly the same, especially my younger sister and I. Is she athletic too, by the way, just whilst we're pursuing this nature nurture thing? (laughs) Yes. So I am the middle of the sisters. Yeah. My two favorite sports that I was passionate and good at were tumbling and volleyball. That's what I was equally good and passionate at and about. Older sister, Olympic gymnast, younger sister, college volleyball player. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like the literal hybrid of the two. Because people go looking for those connections, you know, when when sort of separated at birth type stories mm-hmm. come about. Mm-hmm. And often you can find contradictory evidence. And you say, yes, but they're totally different in this way. I mean, it sounds like for all of you, sport was a really primary focus. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, that, and in Romania, that's, you know, what's heralded as high, especially gymnastics. That's the thing, you know, yeah. that's the sport. Yes, but you weren't in Romania. You and were in I, Illinois. No, I was not, and I was not. <laughs> and, and I was raised in a completely, that's what's fascinating, is to, the, the households that we were raised in were polar opposites. That's what is the most fascinating part about it, is that, and so our differences come directly from how we were raised. And then our similarities are our DNA. Was there then a pressure or a thought about meeting your biological parents at that point? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. Their dad was on hospice. He'd been like, had cancer and battling it for years. And so he died. We met in May of 2008. He died in October of 2008. So he died before I met him. And there was all of that stuff going on. So I think that delayed it even more. And then Camelia, my biological mom, just, you know, she had her own stuff to work through before she could meet me, you know, and it took years. Now we're like kind of evening out, more normal things. Are, but it took years to get to just normal with her. There's never going to be a mother-daughter relationship, is it? You've got your mom. No, yeah. I mean, it's, it. of course, I would never call her mom. But that's just disrespectful. You know what I mean? But... Yeah, we're a lot alike too. The more we get to know each other, it's like, yeah, we're very similar. But when I met her, Camelia, she was so 
blown away. I had already been on the Britney Spears tour, I showing her videos of my acrobatic and aerial stuff. And it was like, you could see in her face that she would have never thought that that could have been possible. Mm. Like she could have never given me that life. You know, it was like mind blowing for her. But she was like proud and, and it was a beautiful moment, you know, and then. But it's painful too, isn't it? For her, I think. That's why it took years for her to get through guilt or whatever she had built up in her head, even though I told her, hey, I have nothing against you and I never have. Then when my parents met her that next day, first thing they told her was that we don't have any ill feelings toward you. We made sure Jen didn't. They brought her a whole shoebox full of pictures of me from my childhood so that she could see what she missed and, you know, all that stuff. And so my parents were very, they always had so much sympathy for her. Like their heart just broke for her because they're like, she's the real victim of the whole story. And I think she is, to be honest. If you could have said anything to your father, what would you have said? You know, even though he did a lot of bad in his life and he was very, you know, of course he was abused too in Romania and that's what he knew. Not that that makes any excuse for it. But you know, he didn't have an easy life either. And um, toward the end of his life when he mellowed out and asked everybody for forgiveness and really just changed who he was for the better... My sisters are like, God, you're so much like him. That drive, you know, he he had nothing when he came to this country, and they were very successful and had a, like made a very nice life for themselves. So he had that drive and that determination. And they're like, you're so much like him. And he would have been so proud and said, that's the Mochianu in her. And so I think we would have been like best buds, to be honest. And I know that sounds like the opposite of what everybody wants me to say or what everyone thinks, but that's that's how I feel when I think about him. I mean, it's. The past is the past, and he did what he did, but I didn't know him then, you know? And and he had already asked for forgiveness and come to peace with everybody. People can change, you know? They really can. When you first started performing as an aerialist... Mm-hmm. You've said that venues were nervous to book you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone said no. <laughs> Everybody, Nobody wanted to hire me. Why? Because, well, it had never been done. So no one had ever seen it. No one had ever seen someone like myself do trampoline performances or silk performances, or nothing. So they were like, I don't know what to do with her. I don't know what this is. What is, you know, are people, how are people going to react? How, is it going to make an audience feel uncomfortable? Does it make me feel uncomfortable? You know, all the questions. And, and I mean, can you understand where some of that discomfort for an audience might come from? Yeah, I mean... Because I do. I, I mean, I've seen your act on YouTube and I think it's beautiful. I think you look brilliant. Thank you. But I can understand how an audience not being prepared for it mm. might think, is she going to be okay? There's that, mm. that feeling of, of care towards mm-hmm. a disabled person, which you don't think about with an able-bodied performer doing things like that, mm-hmm. where you are thinking, is she going to tumble from the ceiling and hurt herself? Now, of course, you're not, because you have, as you said, very strong arms, and you're, mm-hmm. you're a professional, and you're very practiced. Right. But I guess there's that element of discomfort there. You know, when we were first starting, and I, you know, Nate would say that people were, I mean, actually, all of his friends, his acrobat and aerial friends, set him down, like, intervention style, and were like... Um, you're throwing your whole career away. What are you doing by being partners with her? Like you've lost your mind and we're trying to help you. (laughs) Like, you know, and so he later on finally tells me this and I was like, it was kind of like a punch to the stomach. But then also I was like, what is wrong with these people? They're supposed to be the open-minded. They're supposed to be 
the creative artists and they don't get it. I was like, okay, they'll get it. Like, I just was like, fine. I don't care what any of you think then. Like, it was so not in like a chip on my shoulder way. It was like, okay, get out of my way so I can keep moving kind of way. Because you can't just lag behind when everyone's chirping around you with all this nonsense. You know what I mean? Otherwise, then you're never going to move forward. I wonder if, if their feelings was motivated by a different kind of anxiety, actually, which is a sort of probably quite particularly kind of American neurosis about the history of the freak show and that kind of thing, where disability has been paraded for entertainment and now the US is very sensitive about that. There was a little bit of that in it, and I it was a bit of a learning curve of like, I just needed to learn what songs I could perform to, what costumes I should wear, you know what I mean? Like, so that it never skewed anywhere even remotely in that area mm. of that, you know? And then we learned that very quickly. And then it was, then it was fine. You just, there are certain parameters and certain things that I cannot do that other people can do because what, it reads. What can't you do? Totally different. Just, just like even like catchy, stupid, campy music just looks, nah, it reads differently. Mm. Or like, well, just for me personally, I don't want to, people tend to over-sexualize aerialist 100%. They want to throw you in a thong and a bra and put you in the air. Even if you're not even, or you could like be a dancer and they just want to put you up on like a, a hoop and pretend that you're an aerialist so that you look sexy, which mm. is totally dangerous and not how I want to be portrayed. So there were personal preferences and then there were just ones that don't read right for me. But I always knew the audience would love it. I always knew it would be fine. I just, it, in, it was just in me. And the audience reaction, they did love it. Loved it. Loved it from the very first performance. There was no problem nothing that everyone built up in their head nothing nope wasn't there and I knew that I knew that because I saw how people reacted when I was competing and tumbling as a kid mm. it was like the way I was thinking was ahead of the time or something or the curve of you know or just just sometimes people don't see a vision like that's okay like if you have a vision or you know like if you have a dream not everybody is going to understand that and that's okay uh, it may not surprise you looking at my physical form that I have never done any acrobatics <laughs> or aerial work. Um, but I would presume that you practice close to the ground and then slowly elevate. Is that right? You practice certain things not super high in the air at first, but you're still in the air. Mm. Because, I mean, you have to know how it feels. Is it petrifying the first time you go to the very top of a circus or a stadium? Um, silks were not as terrifying as trampoline. <laughs> trampoline skills were like, poof. I was like 90% of it's mental. I mean, it's like you have to override every alarm in your body that's telling you, don't do this. What are you doing? Don't be stupid. This is not, nope, this is dangerous. Fight or flight, you know? And that was, you know, when you're bouncing super high and you're flipping, especially on these competitive trampolines, which is all about technique because one wrong bounce and you're going to fly right off the trampoline. One, and one wrong. Is there any safety protection there if you do? No. No. no, you're mm -hmm. flat on your face. Yep, on the concrete. So you can't really, you can't make a gigantic mistake. You can make small mistakes, mm. but you can't make a, a life or death mistake. <laughs> what do you think about when you're doing those big jumps? Are you relaxed now? Well, as an aerialist on the silks, mm. it is the most freeing thing for me. So for me, it's like therapy. <laughs> if I have a bad day or if I'm going through something, that's when I perform the best. Because it's physically very demanding. I forget how physically demanding and difficult it is because you make it look so beautiful and it's a performance, you know, mm. but it's very releasing. So when I'm kind of struggling through the, the physically difficult moments, that's when I think 
the my soul just kind of pours out and it's very beautiful what are you thinking when you're up there are you thinking mathematical precision this is the next no. thing i need to do or no. can you just is it like driving once you know how to do it and it's, you can... it's you have to be focused obviously because yeah. again there's no net under you there's not you know you're 40 feet in the air then you have a concrete below you but so you're you're focused on it but it's also like ah it's it's a releasing of emotion for me you know and i really like i'm just Mm, everything I'm in a different world so I don't notice the people I don't notice anything like that this is all me giving what's inside of me for everybody else that's what it feels like yeah and it's freeing and this is how you came to be in Dubai practicing indoor skydiving yes so that you were in you were in a show at a hotel yes I was yeah performing a couple like three or four days a week and had a lot of free time on my hands so I started getting certified as a scuba diver and then yeah, they connect me with the skydive guys. Actually, so do you remember Mikey, by the way? Yes, I do. do. I was, love Mikey. Was he the instructor? Yeah, he was one of my teachers. Because I always want to know, we call the man fans our listeners. But yeah, he yeah. teaches people to skydive he whilst does. listening to our podcast. Yes, and super, <laughs> super nice guy. Love him. So have you done outdoor skydiving? Now, I, no, I, weirdly enough, I was supposed to do I'm it in Dubai. I'm very disappointed. I know. What happened to Miss Inspiring? I know. I want you to have, this story's got to end with you jumping out of a helicopter, right? surely. Heli- I know. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to perform on a heli- helicopter is what I wanted to have oh, this hanging from the helicopter and a friend of mine is a helicopter pilot and we've been in like many discussions about this and he's like i'm not gonna fly you i will interview the the uh, helicopter pilots but it's not gonna be me and i don't think it's safe jen like he has all these qualms and all these issues against him like but look how beautiful it would be and he's like yeah i don't want you to die you know performing off of a helicopter i'm like but it'd be so pretty the incredible Jen Bricker. She has a book out as well. It's called Everything is Possible. It's translated into 10 languages, so there should be one you can read. I've put a link to it on our website, and she's well worth a follow on Instagram too. If you have a suggestion of someone we should interview on a future edition of the show, and you are allowed to nominate yourself, get in touch via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. We don't have time to reply to everyone. We do read every single email. Alex Fox is up next with an extraordinary question of sex after this. Time to row a love boat up Shit Creek. It is the foxhole with Alex Fox. You do the oars, I'll do the shock. How are you? I've been learning stuff I didn't know. Is it a sex thing? It's a contraception thing. Okay, sort of a sex thing. I've been making a series of documentaries for Ella One, who are uh, a brand of morning after contraception. And I learned as part of that, the NHS have recently changed their guidelines on the morning after pill if you are someone with a high BMI or weigh over 11 stone Mm -hmm. they're now saying dependent on the type of morning after pill you're taking they're now saying you might need to take two of those morning after pills to account for your larger body size wow and you should also also go straight on to hormonal contraception another option just just to cut through that and give the simple version fat ladies listening looking for a morning after pill don't just take the one from the pharmacist. Go in there with some information on your belt. Yeah, exactly. God. And not all pharmacists know this No, they wouldn't, either. would they? Yeah. And they all probably wouldn't want to presume about the size of a lady either. No. Really. I mean, BMI is uh, quite a hotly contested way of talking about weight anyway, because it's not particularly reliable. I made a podcast series about that myself. Exactly. So you did, Ollie. You're very well informed. But if you are a person who is a little bit on the larger side, it might be worth knowing that that might affect you 
your morning after contraceptive choices. Okay, right. Time for your sexual questions. This one comes from Matt Q, who says, "Hello, Alex. I live in the Isle of Man. This is important." We'll Is it the Isle that. of Man with two ends? It should be. <laughs> we actually don't have a ambassador for the Isle of Man, which is ridiculous. But he's not asking to be one, so there you go. What is he asking, Ollie? Uh, he says, I'm in my late 20s and I have a regular sex partner. We're not dating, but we rarely socialise without knowing that the night will end with us in the bedroom. And we are monogamish. I say ish as we both fantasise about her sleeping with other men whilst I'm in the same room. I'm a bisexual male, and whilst we enjoy MMF threesomes... That's man-man-female. Man-man-female, not man with two ends. No. <laughs> uh, there is something about watching her have sex with a stranger that turns me on. It sounds like a variant uncockholding where a man who is with a woman, in this case quite casually, uh, but in some cases it's his wife or whatever, uh, gains sexual pleasure by seeing her with other men. There's sometimes an aspect of humiliation about that, or sometimes it's just the thrill of watching that sex act take place in front of you. I thought he was about to go on to say, uh, you know, so how do we find a third person to do this? And I kind of thought, well, the answer to that is obvious, the internet. Like, I can understand this question 20 years ago being an issue, but surely there are lots of people who are into this sort of thing. But this is where we return back to his local geography, Alex, <laughs> because he says, which is a fair point, when we're on weekends in the UK, on the mainland, that's fine, um, because the chances of us then seeing this man we've invited back to the bedroom regularly is slim to none. However, on the Isle of Man, there are just 80,000 people. And when you narrow down that we would desire people roughly our age, there's maybe 2,000 of us. <laughs> then you have to take into account that we went to school with 500 of them between the two of us. And we've probably met another two or 300 people when we've been on nights out or working in jobs. So keeping a level of anonymity is tough. And our kind of lifestyle, whether we like it or not, is frowned upon. My female partner is also on the bigger side and is very body conscious, especially when it comes to people that she knows. Uh, she's recently suggested she wants to try a scene where she's tied to a bed with a blindfold and mask on so nobody can tell who she is. And then for me to invite a guy around to have sex with her without her seeing him. Whilst this turns me on no end and does solve our anonymity problem, obviously there is a consent issue here. Which we can discuss, yes. I'd be there to know if she decided against it and step in, but without her seeing or speaking to the guy, how could she consent? Also, is there any way she can keep her anonymity but us have sex with other people that we won't bump into in a week's time? Well, it's tempting upon first read of this question to think, oh, this is extremely specific just to these people alone. But actually, this is relevant to a heck of a lot of people who are swingers or just plain kinky uh, in very small towns. Uh, and I, the Isle of Man is also very religious. And think about all the people in America who live in small towns towns on the Bible Belt. This is applicable to them as well, if they happen to be into swinging or BDSM or anything else that's uh, perhaps the raspberry ripple end of the scale rather than being vanilla. So let's have a think about things we can propose to this couple because the scenario that they have put forward here is not without problems. Um, for a start, I would encourage them definitely to make the most of those weekends in the UK and it sounds like they already are doing. But another option is if they meet somebody whilst they're on the mainland whose company they really enjoy, 
why not invite that person to come and visit them on the Isle of Man? I mean, it's great for the tourism board. And <laughs> and so they... I guess, yeah, but then you're stuck with them for the whole weekend, aren't you? I mean, that's kind of what they're getting at as well. Get them to stay in a, in a B&B. Yeah, but then you're paying for someone's mini break, I suppose. No, I... That, that person can pay for the mini break. Mm. Other things to bear in mind. Our writer here says our kind of lifestyle is frowned upon. That by implication suggests that whoever takes part in any kind of swinging activity is also likely not to want the whole of the Isle of Man to know about it. Mm. So there is this sort of code of conduct and trust that is not only based on being a decent person and respecting that you don't tell all and sundry about what you've been up to and down to with someone if you have been being a bit kinky, but also it's in your own interests for the whole village not to know because you're outing yourself as kinky. However, they do raise this idea of consent and I wonder if they've considered that the person doing the boffing, if you will, might also have worries about that. Uh, There was a legal case a little while ago where a woman who was using a blindfold all the time during sex uh, had been tricked into having intercourse with somebody who was actually uh, female and using a strap on. Maybe I'm overcomplicating matters there by introducing the idea of someone pretending to be a a different gender, which is in itself a very uh, convoluted uh, thing to discuss. But it's a dramatic example Um, of what could happen if you're blindfolded. Yeah, Yeah. that person who is agreeing to fuck somebody who doesn't know who they are and has a blindfold on and is tied to a bed might be worried that that woman actually hasn't given full consent. They may be concerned about where that might leave them legally and or morally. Mm. Um, So thinking about how the third person in this scenario will feel about consent issues is something that uh, Matt Q and his partner should consider here as well as uh, how consent pertains to the woman here. And it does pertain to her. One thing that I don't really understand about their proposal here is why she can't vet the person whilst remaining anonymous before they agree that he will come round and do the fucking. How would that work? If Matt Q and his partner use a swingers site to identify who on the Isle of Man is up for that kind of jiggery Mm. they can then do something like wear their blindfolds and facetime this person and Mm. have a little chit chat with them or do it via webcam or assess them in in any other remote way whilst um whilst covering up either either or both of their identities and that way the woman in this scenario can say yes this seems like somebody i'd i'd want to proceed with or no that person's not my cup of tea and whilst consent is very much an ongoing thing, so even if she had vetted them and then it came to the moment and she changed her mind, that at least offers her more of a say in who it is who's visiting her to have a physical interaction with her uh, than Matt Q just arranging for a random bloke to pop over. Uh, a couple of other things that they might want to consider before they proceed with this particular plan. Number one, the idea of... Uh, the female partner here being tied down as well as blindfolded and as well as um, potentially the person who she's having a sexual interaction being unknown to her, that I can understand why all of those factors might be thrilling, but that is also potentially quite high risk. It's very intense. She might feel 
more secure and more reassured that it would be easier for her to stop proceedings if she's not restrained. So maybe taking one of those aspects away, at least for the first time Mm. that they try this, that might be a good idea. Just scale it back a little bit before you go in all guns blazing. Um, Also, this idea that she's wearing a blindfold not only to preserve her anonymity and her identity, but also because it makes her feel more confident as a plus-size woman. Mm. Yes, removing your sight can make you feel more confident, but I also think it's worth them as a couple and her as an individual working to try and feel a bit better about herself. Mm. I think that is likely to improve all aspects of her personal life and uh, more widely, and their sexual life. It's, a strange it's thing. really hard to do. I do appreciate that's tough. It's a strange thing, sort of psychologically as well, isn't it? If you're body conscious about someone looking at you, you'd almost think the logical thing, I mean, that's the classic thing is to turn the lights off, isn't it? You'd almost think the logical thing to do if anyone's going to wear a blindfold would be the person having sex with you, not you. Blindfolding yourself so that you can't see your body. Well, the person obviously finds you sexually attractive because they are having sex with you. Well, you might have inadvertently hit on another solution there, Ollie. They could always blindfold the person who they're inviting round to do the bonking. That's true. Then he wouldn't know who they were. Maybe they could all wear blindfolds. It could be consented to in advance. <laughs> yeah. It could turn into some bizarre parlour game where they're all, t- they're all feeling around trying to find everybody. Um, returning to your point, though, Ollie, about why would you remove your own sight rather than somebody else's if you uh, feel uncomfortable about your body. Some people just don't like that sensation of being stared at. Mm. And so if they remove their ability to see, they tend to worry less about being analysed. Um, so weird that that person would then want to be in a relationship with someone who gets off on seeing other people <laughs> having sex. Well, this is yin and yang. Yeah, yeah, opposite totally opposite is, to track. Um <laughs> I think we've ascertained that this plan is not flawless by any means. Another thing that they might want to consider is using webcams. You can have complete strangers on the internet tell you what they want you to do to each other or what they want to see a woman do to herself, Mm -hmm. what performance they want her to put on in front of Matt Q. It's not the same as having an anonymous man come round and fuck her in front of you, but it might still be quite spicy and exciting. Yeah, exactly. Potentially even more than three people. There are sites nowadays where if you invest in a certain type of vibrator that's hooked up to the internet, that people tipping you or entering in certain words can cause it to vibrate. So you can actually be stimulated from afar. What's that product called? It's called Oh My Bod is one example of them anyway, but there's a few on the market now. So there's lots of ways that you can interact with strangers without them having to be on the Isle of Man and without you having to travel to reach them. Very sensible suggestion, actually. Potentially cheaper as well. They could actually even make some money from it if they're happy to broadcast (laughs) their mask-wearing selves. I wonder if you're uh, able to to broadcast it outside of the Isle of Man, but not in that territory, though. I don't know if you need someone clearing the rights. <laughs> I don't have the digital knowledge to know whether that's possible, no. but, you know, if you've got a pal who's a whiz with a computer, then, yeah, get someone to sort out your IT while you get up to your <laughs> S&M. Um, on the total flip side, 
if they if they fancy saving up some pennies, then they might want to take a very specific swingers holiday. Uh, there's quite a few new ones or revamped ones on the market. Um, there's a company called Temptation Holidays who offer resorts for swingers and also cruises. So you know that you're going to spend the entirety of your trip and everything you've invested in completely surrounded by a number of people who might be comparably small in number to the Isle of Man, but who you absolutely know are up for the same thing you are. So they could replicate their Isle of Man scenario in terms of numbers, um, but completely turn it on its head in terms of opportunity. Very economic solution. Alex, thank you. If you have uh, a suggestion of how to engage a voyeuristic MMF threesome on the Isle of Man, do get in touch. <laughs> um, all our details are on the website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Click feedback if you have a question for Alex. And whether you're up for talking about the Isle of Man, the Isle of You, or the AEIOUs of fuckery, please do get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram at Alex. Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. Well, that is nearly it for this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Matteo, an Italian expat in London, who says, Ollie, your podcasts have been my introduction to British culture, language and humour since I moved to the UK five years ago. Christ, what have I done? I almost had a heart attack when I heard Sammy from Rome get in touch last episode. I thought she was about to be crowned ambassador for Italy. Luckily, she only asked for the Roman title. It's prompted me to ask if the Milanese equivalent is still available. Not anymore, it isn't, Matteo. I now proudly appoint you ambassador for Milan. Congratulazioni. If you want to be a ambassador, just buy us a beer or write us a review on iTunes and then tell us about it. All the links are on our website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next month. Next time on The Modern Man. One of the common things a psychic will say, they say, I need you to open up credit cards. And they say, I need you to get cards at Bloomingdale's, at Nordstrom's, at Macy's, you know, at high-end shops. So I need you to get gift cards, $5,000 worth of gift cards on that credit card that you just opened up. You need to give me the gift cards so I can buy crystals and candles in furtherance of the work to do the rituals. What happens when mumbo-jumbo leads to extortion? Meet the private investigator who brings fraudulent psychics to justice. Download it July the 1st, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.